Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 193, Expanding the Market in Low Earth Orbit. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, all kinds of experts about their part in America's space exploration program. Today, we're going to take you inside another important aspect of the mission of the International Space Station. From before the first element of the station was launched in 1998, through the arrival of Expedition 1 to begin a continuous human habitation of space that's now in its 21st year, one of the International Space Station program's primary goals has been to promote the commercialization of space. By creating a science laboratory in orbit, and by being a reliable destination for years and years, and yes, by providing seed money for private development, the station has provided a goal that private companies could drive toward, whether in making use of the facility for scientific research, or in delivering payloads, or in creating their own products, heck, creating their own companies, to help move private enterprise off of planet Earth. And it's worked. This is the fourth in a series of NASA-sponsored panel discussions in recognition of the 20th anniversary of continuous human presence on the station. We brought you the first ones in February, March, and early April. This time, representatives of NASA and several private companies discuss how the station has helped create a new era in space exploration. The moderator is NASA Public Affairs Officer Gary Jordan, who you've heard here on the podcast from time to time. He will introduce you to eight guests gathered at a virtual roundtable to provide some background and perspective about the development of commercial space and their thoughts about the next steps. Okay then, here we go. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit to the red. There she goes. We have a podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this next installment in our series of panels in celebration of the 20th anniversary of continuous human presence on the International Space Station. The station has been a critical testbed for scientific research and technology development in low Earth orbit for the past two decades. By the time we reached 20 years of continuous human habitation, more than 3,000 experiments have been conducted involving 4,200 researchers from 108 countries, truly an international orbiting laboratory. What is clear is that there is value in low Earth orbit, and the future of operations in low Earth orbit lies with commercial companies. Commercial work done in low Earth orbit is not new. NASA has had longstanding relationships with commercial companies. In fact, many of our panelists today represent those very companies. The International Space Station will play a critical role in NASA's goal to develop a robust economy, a robust, robust commercial economy in low Earth orbit. So on today's panel titled Expanding the Market in Low Earth Orbit, we're going to explore the history and future of the commercialization of low Earth orbit with some of the most influential people leading these efforts. So joining our esteemed panel today is Mike Reed, International Space Station uh, Business Econ and Economic Development Manager at NASA. John Mulholland, Vice President and Manager for the International Space Station Program at Boeing. Christine Kretz, Vice President of Programs and Partnerships for the International Space Station U.S. National Lab. Jeffrey Manber, Chief Executive Officer, Officer and Co-Founder at Nanorax. Rich Bowling, Vice President of Corporate Advancement at TechShot. 
Phil McAllister, Director of Commercial Spaceflight at NASA, Benji Reed, Senior Director of Human Spaceflight at SpaceX, and Ven Fen, Deputy Manager of NASA's Commercial Crew Program. Thank you all for taking the time to discuss this topic today. Mike Reed, I want to start with you, sort of setting the context for what we're going to be talking about today. I talked about low Earth orbit in my introduction, said that, that uh, phrase quite a bit. But let's start with that. What is low Earth orbit? And what is special about that part of space for commercialization efforts? Low Earth orbit is that that's what's close to Earth, the closest to the Earth, as opposed to geostationary, which is 22,000 miles away. This could be as close as 150 or 200 miles away. And that's the orbit that space station is in, about 250 miles. It's quick to get to. It's uh, cheaper relatively to get to than your, than your deeper space uh, orbits. And so that's, uh, that's a platform that... Uh, where we have a space station where we do most of our research right now. It's, it's also very expensive to get platforms into a much deeper space uh, positioning, and so therefore access to it is more expensive and the volume is incredibly limited. So Mike, let's talk, let's talk about the International Space Station in particular. How is the International Space Station a player in some of these commercialization efforts? And then why is this commercialization effort at all important to NASA? I'm going to start with the second question first, because the, the why you do something seems to me always to set the stage for, for the how. Um, that there's a couple of truisms with, with regard to NASA and, and our need for space. One is NASA is always going to have a need for a low Earth orbit platform for crew proficiency and training, for our fundamental and applied research, and, and critically for our advanced systems development for our exploration program, because things don't operate in space the same way they do in 1G. And, and until we've got years of operating in a low Earth orbit platform with a next-gen system, we're not going to put that in a deep space platform and, and trust it. The, the second thing is space station is going to be the last U.S. government funded and 100% and led uh, platform in LEO. It's just, it's not tenable. It's, it's not going to, there will not be another U.S. government LEO platform. Um, and so if we don't use station right now to enable the development of, of uh, not only the, the, the next generation platform, but the use of that platform, um, the supply side is critical for our LEO economy. You, you, you were working on our crew and cargo uh, transportation. That's been going on for well over a decade, and others on this panel are going to discuss those. Um, and more recently, we've also enabled uh, the development of a commercially-led element that will attach as a new module to ISS that can be used for, for research and, and government as a customer, but not the customer. But that's, that's only one half of the equation. An economy is built up of the supply side, and, and the demand side. And right now, the US government is virtually the only user uh, uh, of significance of, of the platform and we pay virtually all of the costs. And that's simply not, not tenable going forward. We have to help enable other users of the LEO platform to, to see that they can actually do it. And, and the National Lab folks are gonna talk about that because they're bringing in uh, not only non-NASA players, but uh, uh, non-government players, and, and that's critical. About two or three years ago, we kind of stopped to assess what we'd been doing in, in over the last decade or, or more, and, and what we were seeing was there weren't a lot of return customers, and I use that term loosely. Um, there were a lot of companies, commercial companies, that were doing research, but it wasn't a key element of their, their commercial research plan. And, and so we said, what, why, why is that? And it's because, it's, it, first of all, they don't understand microgravity. Secondly, it's, it's expensive to adapt your terrestrial research 
to to operate in a microgravity environment. So we we started a very focused project to enable scalable, sustainable demand, non-NASA demand for a next generation platform using the space station while we have it. And so um, space station program started investing in a portfolio of in-space manufacturing um, projects, anything from uh, retinal implants to bioprinting to uh, optical fibers, exotic fibers, uh, silicon carbide, things like that, that if, if successful, if you can prove that they're orders of magnitude better than what you can do in 1G, you can afford the cost of using space and, and, and all of the things that, that drive the cost for, for doing that. So um, that, that portfolio is migrating to a, a new LEO commercialization office that the agency has stood up. Um, the agency actually adopted a very broad LEO commercialization strategy over a year ago. Um, and so the bits and pieces that the ISS program had been working on for, for years have now coalesced into a cohesive strategy. And, that, and that's pretty cool. And I think what's also cool, Mike, is that is that it's really, you know, we're talking about some of these recent efforts. Um, it, there's even a deeper history here. In fact, the International Space Station and NASA really have always had relationships with commercial companies. Uh, John Mulholland, I'm going to pass it over to you. Boeing, in particular, has had an extensive history working with NASA, notably uh, the company's work on the shuttle and the International Space Station. Can you describe the relationship between NASA and Boeing specifically for the International Space Station? Yeah, I mean, I really think from a human spaceflight perspective, we've grown up with NASA. We've been NASA's partner on every U.S. human spaceflight mission dating all the way back to Mercury. Uh, on ISS in particular, we've been NASA's primary partner since 1986 when the ISS was still known as Freedom. But working with NASA, we designed and built most of the U.S. segments. Uh, we integrated the international partners. We've been NASA's uh, primary partner throughout. Today, uh, the focus is on sustainment uh, operations, make sure operations are are, uh, are safely performed. Um, and then really importantly, looking you know now in, and into the future, capability restoration and enhancement, that's really going to set the stage to uh, do research on ISS um, over the next decade uh, or more. And then uh, payload integration, right? And payload integration is just hugely important because that that returns the investment on the ISS. And as you mentioned, there's been you know, over 3,000 experiments done to date. Um, fantastic laboratory. And we're just proud to have been NASA's partner throughout. And and that that partnership really has, has been, is, is a continuing thing, right? What have you seen, John, in terms of, of the value just working on the International Space Station program with NASA uh, from, from Boeing for so long? What is the value that you have really seen uh, with the International Space Station. Yeah, I think you know there's there's lots of, of of streams of value. You know, one is the international collaboration and and everything there. But but really, what I think um, the legacy of the ISS is is going to be is uh, the research and discovery that's uh, that that we've had to date and and that we promise to uh, to show in the future. And you know, just just a couple of examples of of research that's almost getting ready to be fielded in a cure for Duquesne's muscular dystrophy um, that was fu fundamentally developed because of research on the ISS. Um, and just, you know, in the last month or so, uh, scientists completed um, research on a potential cure for leukemia. So, you know, b between those, um, manufacturing and space, there's just so much promise. You know, everything that 
that we have done as a species, all the discoveries we've made have been made under the influence of gravity. This is the first time that a national laboratory has been dedicated to research without um, the, the effects of gravity, and we're seeing astounding results. And let, let, so let's explore that a little bit, the idea of the space station as a U.S. national lab. Uh, Christine Kretz, at the top of this panel, I mentioned more than 3,000 experiments have been conducted on the station, thousands of researchers from more than 100 different uh, countries. Many of these experiments were conducted and performed or through the function of the International Space Station as a U.S. national lab. Can you explain what that means and why it's important? Sure, that's uh, great, Gary, and thanks for the question. Um, as you know, Congress opened up the, the, the National Lab as a, as a way for researchers around the world, but U.S. researchers especially, to have access for non-NASA research. And, and Mike pointed out some of the things that NASA has helped foster. But opening it up to a, a, a broader group of researchers on Earth to think about how they may, may take that terrific asset that, that we have in space and leverage it for their research was important. That spans academics, universities, startup companies. Mike mentioned the uh, the optical um, implant that is coming out of Lamb Division from a startup organization, as well as uh, working with industry partners, Merck, Pfizer, um, Sanofi recently, and then others like Adidas. So, so having companies have access to the space station required something that was a kind of a non-NASA non opportunity. That gives us 50% of the up mass and down mass plus 50% of the astronaut time. And with more astronauts on board the station right now, that's more astronaut time that, that we're happy to have access to. But it's a lot of partnerships. And so the partnerships that, that John mentioned are important. Partnership with NASA to foster that with us and help us collaborate together. Partnerships with companies like Boeing that have uh, sponsored the Technology and Space Prize that created the opportunity for LAM Division to put their, their application into space. Partnerships with NSF and NIH, who also foster research like tissue chips in space that we work with. And then the commercial service providers, and, and Rich and, and Jeff are here today to talk about their efforts. They provide access directly through their operations to go to the space station, including STEM, um, other kinds of really interesting regenerative medicine research that's going on, and a, and a partner can go directly to their organizations and those commercial service providers access the space station through our allocation. It's important just for the same things that, that Mike and John mentioned previously, which is really innovative efforts that would not be possible without the access granted by Congress in partnership with NASA to access that. So some of the things mentioned here were muscular dystrophy, leukemia research, the regenerative medicine work that's going on that may someday cause, uh, allow us to have implantable organs. I mean, it's it's sounds far-fetched, but the direction to use this is really an amazing innovative platform. And because of the access that these researchers have, I guess, it's, it's corny to say the sky's the limit, but in fact, it's amazing to see what people come up with. And we're really excited to continue to work with NASA and our partners here to allow that access. Christine, you've given so many fantastic examples of some of the research on station. Have you seen, and you mentioned opening it up as a U.S. lab in, in 2005, or at least the, 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 the push from Congress to do so. 
have you seen an increase in participation and demand from when you first started opening it up as a U.S. lab, trying to get the word out that there is this orbiting laboratory that companies have access to? Have you seen an increase to where we are now in 2020? Absolutely. The uh, initial experiments were, were fewer and further between because researchers just weren't aware of the access and they we had not yet developed the platforms that, that Jeff and Rich and, and other of our commercial service providers have created. So over time, the word has gotten out, research has become more and more complex because of the kind of learnings that they've had. And again, the, the commercial service providers and implementation partners have built platforms right on the station, and I'm sure that they'll talk about those more, that allow people to de-risk their research, allowing for more and more creativity and more success. In addition, as we learn more, those opportunities become more complex. And so they take more astronaut time, they take more, more capabilities from, um, from our partners, and they've all risen to that and made those opportunities available. So I, I started here only two years ago and the types of things that I've seen from the tissue chips in space, which are gonna be a game changer to things that Rich will talk about, the BFF and Jeff will talk about his platforms. It's just amazing even in two years, the, the changes we've seen and what's ahead for us. It's really exciting. I think that's the perfect segue to you, Jeff. Uh, we, we mentioned longstanding relationships with uh, with John Mulholland not too long ago with Boeing. Nanorax has also been one of those longstanding relationships with NASA, with the U.S. National Lab. Can you talk about some of these great things that Christine was alluding to that you've been performing as a commercial company operating on the International Space Station? Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. So many friends. Uh, you, you know, when you look back on the International Space Station, it's not just the hardware, though I'll talk about that in a moment. It's also a new system. It's new partnerships between the private sector and, and the government. And, and, and so probably one of the most important legacies at 20 years of the International Space Station is the public-private partnerships and the maturing of that. There's no better examples than, let's say, the, you know, the SpaceX and Northrop contracts and Boeing contracts for cargo and crew uh, with, uh, you know, with companies like Nanoracks. We've invested, you know, considerable money. Uh, into our hardware, our platforms. We're ready to go as we record this on Space, SpaceX 21. Benji, make sure that thing gets up there. We got our Bishop Airlock on there. And, and that's a permanent addition to the uh, space station that's privately funded. Uh, and we worked in partnership with Boeing uh, on that. And, and so the space station for me is a, is a, a lot of things. It's first off, it's stability bipartisan support. We don't have bipartisan support for much these days, and we have it for the International Space Station. And that bipartisan support has given us the time to make these sort of investments, to work out the, the ecosystem that's developing in low Earth orbit. And, you know, uh, at Nanoracks, we have customers from over 30 countries. As I said, we're investing in different platforms. We work everything from biopharma to satellite deployment. Uh, deployments. We've deployed over 280 satellites from the space station. We've uh, coordinated over 1,000 projects. A lot of folks in my office call them payloads, but people outside of people like us don't know what payloads are. They're projects. And every one of those has a dream and an aspiration and an objective. And now Nanorax has uh, recently announced that we're going to 
be in the research business. We're going to be, I think, one of the first companies in the in the industry to be supporting our own researchers, driving our own uh, research in ag tech and biopharma, and we'll use Rich's hardware and our hardware and everyone else's hardware. And, and so you see that ecosystem developing. So I, I guess for me at Nanorax, we're now 11 years into this journey, and uh, it's been wonderful to see the public-private partnership partnerships mature with NASA and other government agencies, to see the customer base mature, they get more sophisticated. Now we're launching multiple times a year, uh, and it's really an exquisite sort of like Swiss clock. And it works. It's wonderful, and uh, it's a delight to be part of. Now, the Bishop Airlock was one of those things that was mentioned. Christine alluded to it. Jeff, you mentioned it a, a few times. I think it's a good model for for understanding what a a commercial facility operating in low Earth orbit is. Can you talk about that specific module, the the Nanorex Bishop Airlock? Sure. We recognized early on that uh, the JAXA uh, uh, airlock is wonderful, but we we thought uh, that there could be more business, more opportunity, grow utilization if there was a bigger airlock. And we went to NASA, and, and as usual, unfortunately for, for Nanorex, we didn't ask for funding. Uh, we said, hey, if, if, uh, if we put up this airlock, uh, I'll, I'll catch on, Mike. At some point, I'll think about asking for funding. But anyway, uh, we, 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 uh, we said, hey, we, we're willing to invest in having a larger, five times larger airlock than anything that exists on the station. And so we went ahead, we got partners with Boeing, we got partners with Talis Alini and others, uh, and uh, we uh, pretty well self-funded uh, this airlock. We now have enjoyed contracts with European Space Agency, NASA, with some co commercial companies, domestic and international. Uh, we're scheduled as we record this to go up on the next cargo ship uh, from SpaceX. And so there you have a wonderful example of a public-private partnership where the private sector comes up with a concept comes up with the with the funding is is based on the investment the taxpayer has made you know over the last 20 years and beyond in the international space station and frankly now nasa's coming in uh, as a customer but pretty much a commercial customer uh, because they didn't they didn't fund us prior they waited to see that we were moving along and and uh, and so it's still a fragile market but uh, couldn't be more excited by uh, the Bishop airlock it's going to be a permanent addition to the station and a great symbol for the uh, growing maturity of the ecosystem now rich TechShot is another commercial company operating on the space station now through some of your work at TechShot, can you describe some of the things you've been a part of and the value that you've seen in low earth orbit Sure. So uh, we were founded in, in 88. So some of our first payloads were onboard uh, space shuttle missions. And at that time, we, uh, I think we outright owned one payload, but most of what we were doing was building them and turning, turning them over to the agency. Uh, in the station era, that sort of uh, flipped. And now we've developed uh, nearly a dozen payloads of so many different varieties, payloads, projects, uh, it, perhaps if maybe we should call them. Uh, many are on board the station now and others are in the pipeline ready for flight certification. Those things are um, tools that enable research with fish, plants, cells, uh, whole animals. Um, we have an x-ray machine for mice on board the station now and we've done 156 x-rays of mice so far. Uh, one of the more, more interesting ones of those 
uh, was for the research team of uh, Sejin Lee and Emily Germain Lee, the Mighty Mice that I think uh, a lot of people have heard about. We were proud to play uh, a role in that Mighty Mouse, Mighty Mice uh, research that showed that uh, some of the treatments they gave those mice, uh, the muscle muscle wasting was not only uh, reduced, but in some cases, uh, some of the animals were came back stronger from space than, than when they went up. And obviously that has terrific uh, implications for long-term spaceflight crews, but also folks here on earth who uh, have muscle wasting diseases and it could be a real game changer and perhaps one of the most important things that we've been a part of at a station. Uh, but others are also uh, very exciting. We're getting ready to launch some squid on uh, SpaceX uh, 21. And, uh, and, it, and so there's quite a wide variety of equipment that most of which we provide as sort of a picks and shovels model where um, it's not our research, it's the research of our customers and we provide the whole uh, uh, ecosystem of what they need to to get some amazing results in space. I mean, microgravity has a way of sort of lifting the mask off of uh, biological processes and and allowing researchers to understand more about what's going on inside of a of a of a biological system. Sometimes that means that they need to go back into space and and uh, and continue either research or uh, some some manipulation in, on orbit, but uh, also it, it might mean that they've learned something in microgravity that they can, they can apply and, and replicate on Earth, uh, which also I think is is helpful to the industry. Um, you know, but our payloads, our projects are divided into a couple of categories. One is what we do provide for those customers of ours, um, but then the projects that we take on for ourselves with our internal uh, science team. And those are related to things like what uh, Christine and Mike alluded to with our bioprinter. So the, uh, the, the TechShot 3D biofabrication facility, uh, which we developed in partnership with a company called Enscript in Orlando, which we think makes the world's finest uh, terrestrial 3D printers. And um, the, the bioprinter is something that is uh, a project of TechShots. The research is ours. We're doing the research internally now and occasionally bringing in outside investigators uh, when it when it makes sense. Uh, also working on a cell factory tech shot uh, in space manufacturing capability to be able to make all sorts of stem cells in space for for either cell therapies on Earth or for research uh, by by our own customers. We can pr provide a source of cell manufacturing um, on orbit. And then lastly, we're working on a 3D metal printer for for the uh, for the station as well that uh, hopefully we'll be able to prove prove its use to make aerospace grade things like titanium, uh, which also will help uh, exploration crews going to deep space uh, and even on the surface of Mars. But you know, these technical accomplishments, I think, are, are definitely important. But you know, Jeff talked about just the the uh, the infrastructure, whether it's the, the technical infrastructure or just the the policy infrastructure that's been established, and I and I, I agree that I think that uh, that's going to be um, this this NASA democratization of space, where I think it has intentionally fostered entrepreneurial participation. I think that's going to be regarded as one of the station's most important achievements. And uh, to me, this kind of leadership in technology and enterprise in space seems to be uh, a very American thing to do. We're excited to be a part of it. Rich, you've explained so many 
fascinating types of research. And, and I think people listening may be surprised to hear just how many different areas there are, material science, biological science, uh, and some of them may want to get involved as well. Can you kind of draw some lines and th to connect some, with some of our panelists today? We have representative from U.S. National Lab. We have you from TechShot. We have NASA. Can you talk about the relationships with tech, with TechShot and with, with all of these different elements that bring this together for those that may also want to get involved? Right. So, so first of all, part of that intentionality that I mentioned, which I think um, is not to be just quickly dismissed. I mean, Mike's office, um, Mike's been involved in in the commercialization station for um, a long time, and and he he talked about how he's seen uh, an evolution of what works and what uh, policies that NASA can put in place to foster this. So we worked with Mike's office. Uh, we got a space act agreement established years ago, as I know uh, Jeff has as well. And so without, without Mike's office, we couldn't do this. Uh, we launch on uh, essentially every SpaceX cargo dragon. And without that resupply capability, especially that return capability, we couldn't do what, what we want to do. Uh, once we get into more of a production mode with uh, uh, human tissue, which again, I, I don't want to give anyone the idea that this is happening, uh, you know, next year, but it, uh, it looks good. It looks promising. And we need that return capability to bring those things that we manufacture for patients uh, back to earth. And Christine mentioned the, the allocation and the fact that we can partner with the ISS uh, U.S. National Laboratory to, uh, frankly, not only do uh, uh, manifesting, but also we rely on them and, and partner with them in just helping potential customers understand the value of microgravity. Uh, they've got some tremendous resources on staff that do a, a far better job than I do about explaining the, the value and the benefits of microgravity to material science folks, to, to people in industry and in pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and for so many reasons, we rely on folks uh, like Christine at the National Lab. Um, and, and then even uh, competitors, uh, Jeff and I, we don't compete in, in, in every aspect. Certainly we don't uh, launch CubeSats or things like that. But I do still consider his success, my success and the success of the industry. This is frankly, uh, a small industry compared to so many others. And, and I do cheer on the success of Nanorax, uh, Space Tango, uh, BioServe and others, uh, because we wanna grow this pie. We wanna, we wanna rally uh, and, and uh, build demand uh, for ourselves. And right now that also means helping others build demand for their products and services. So it's a definitely an interdependent ecosystem right now. Thank you, Rich. You can really get a sense of just all the commercial work happening in low Earth orbit. I think another really important piece of this puzzle is the transportation to and from low Earth orbit. We're talking about what's happening on low Earth orbit, but that transportation is another critical piece. Over the, mass, over the past many years, um, cargo has been delivered to station by way of commercial spacecraft. Now we're bringing on the next generation of human-rated spacecraft. So I want to shift gears from some of the work on International Space Station to these transportation capabilities. Benji Reed, I want to pass it first to you. We're not too far removed from a huge milestone. Crew-1, the first crew rotation flight on a commercial spacecraft, just arrived at the International Space Station with four astronauts who will now call the station their home for the next six months. First of all, congratulations. What an incredible achievement for SpaceX. Well, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the panel today, and and and, and you know, always massive congratulations to the uh, 
the space station itself and the program and all the partners involved in making it happen, our industry partners and NASA partners and the international partnership. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 an it's an amazing accomplishment. It represents the work of thousands of people, um, SpaceX and NASA joint teams, um, dedication and sacrifice by them and their families to pull it off. And of course, um, you know, the, the most exciting part is for those four crew members, um, for Victor, Mike, Shannon, and Soichi, and um, their dedication to, to going up and, and living and working and doing all of the science um, and commercialization efforts that we have to do. And always a, you know, Thank you to them and their families um, for trusting us in that transportation and, and, and bringing them up there and bringing them home safely. Um, so yeah, you talk a lot about transportation. And I think it kind of looking at the big picture um, and, uh, and Rich used a really good word, uh, intentionality. Um, SpaceX was founded and, and continues to focus as our, our number one mission is fundamentally to make life multiplanetary. Um, <clears throat> and those aren't just words that's the real deal. That's what we do. And so when you look at that picture, you say, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, the, the nearest planet is Mars. But what do we have to do to, to, to make that happen? Well, we've got to put thousands of people on Mars. We have to put thousands of tons of cargo on Mars and probably more, right? Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Ultimately, you know, a self-sustaining civilization on another planet is going to look like, you know, at least a million people. And that sounds mind-blowing probably to most people right now, but but that's that's the reality of what it's going to take. And that's the intention, the intentionality, and that's the mission um, of SpaceX. And I think a lot of us, I mean, we all really want to see this awesome future where, you know, humans are a space-faring species, um, where we're carrying, you know, our, our adventure, our learning, and our exploration to the stars. Um, and, and, it, and again, this is exactly what we're seeing in low Earth orbit, and what we're seeing on the space station that has benefits back home, you know, back on the Earth and to uh, a lot of terrestrial applications. So how to do that, you, you, so you, so it's kind of a kind of a practical set of steps as you think through the problem, right? Okay, well, eventually I need to put thousands of people and thousands of tons of cargo all the way on another planet. Um, and what are the barriers to that? So you look at the barriers and you say, well, number one, I need the technology to do it. And number two, I need to drop the price. The cost is the problem. Right, the cost of space is really the fundamental um, limiting factor in the equation um, in this whole experiment of space exploration. The limiting factor is is how much does it how much does it cost per pound um, to get to get things up there? Because that cost not only is is a cost directly on your project, right, um, but it's also it it increases the cost of the project itself. If you're going to spend you know thousands or millions of dollars for a launch. Um, or, or to be a piece of a launch, um, and and now you got to worry. Well, I'm going to only send one of these things up there, and it's got to work. It's got to be perfect. And so you spend a lot of money and a lot of time making that one thing um, work really, really, really well and have high, high reliability. Whereas when you look at like, well, how do industries take off? How do economies take off terrestrially and historically? Well, a lot of times it isn't because you built one car, right? They didn't off the line and say, I'm going to build one car and it's going to be the perfect car and it's going to work forever. Well, they built a lot of cars to start with and there was a lot of people actually working in it. Any, any invention or, you know, that you look around, there's actually a lot of people working in that and, and, and a lot of different, a lot of failures that happen. So how do you, you want to be able to, again, you have to drive that overall price down so there, there can be many, right? There has to be, we, use the, we keep using these terms like ecosystem 
um, and, and, and others that are very biologically based terms, but there's a good reason for that, right? That's the way life works. Biology is a, it's, you know, there's, there's a ton of different options. There's a huge diversity of opportunity. Um, and that's how you, that's how you ultimately evolve and, and, and grow. And that's what we have to do here too. So what do we do at SpaceX? So then you go to the next step of the problem. Okay, well, how do you drive down costs? Well, the cost of transportation ultimately is the lack of reusability, right? If you, if you have to build, we always say it, but it's always worth repeating. You get on that big jet airplane and if you had to, you know, fly across the country from New York to Los Angeles and then you're done with that flight and you push it into the ocean, that's going to be a pretty expensive set of tickets. And so we started working, you know, from the very beginning on how do we refly rockets? How do we reuse those rockets? Um, and ultimately, um, you know, all of the pieces of the spacecraft, everything that we can do. Huge partnership um, with NASA on the COTS program. Um, the uh, the original cargo transportation services program and the development there we developed Dragon on that program and we developed um, Falcon 9 on that program. Um, both of those uh, the the Falcon 9 now of course is being used across many different uh, for many different customers um, and 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 for many different programs government and private um, and we see we see how that works together. We've flown Dragon uh, now to the space station at home 20 times. Um, in that time, that Falcon 9 that was developed has flown over 100 times, um, over 60 times it's reflown, um, uh, which is great uh, and, and really kind of amazing when you think about it just over the last few years. So we're starting to see that, right? We're starting to drive down those prices. Ultimately, the cost of space and space transportation needs to be driven down by an order of magnitude, you know, by, you know, divide by 10 and then divide by 10 again, probably two orders of magnitude. Um, to actually get to these goals, and we're gonna we're, we're gonna get there. We're gonna do that. Um, and then so so serving the space station, you talk about, and, and one of the things that was mentioned was the bringing of things home, um, which is very very important, right? The, the goal for going multiplanetary is to send people away <laughs> and never come back, right? We actually we want there to be this like interchange, this this interchange of transportation. Um, and so this is the space station and the work we've been able to do with them and NASA and all of these great partners that we've been hearing from today and others is about that bringing things up and bringing them home and, and being able to learn. So from the beginning, Dragon was designed to, to, to fly lots of science, lots of payloads to the space station and bring it home um, safely. And, uh, and there's other partners out there who are also working on those technologies too. Um, and also from the beginning, Dragon was designed to be able to fly people and fly and, and maintain um, life and um, you know biological um, payloads, if you will, for like the like the, we talked about the mice earlier. Um, and it's cool to hear there's going to be squid on there, um, and, you know, on, on CRS 21, the, the the cargo vehicle 21, you know. And there's a lot. We've been actually been flying a lot of um, biological cargo for a long time on and and and, and maintaining environments even for non-bio cargo that needed to um, on Dragon for many many flights for many years. Um, and then, yeah, now, cul and now culminating with our, our Crew Dragon, um, which is our Dragon 2 line, and then coming up this, this CRS-21, this Cargo-21 flight, um, will also be on the, will be the first flight of, of uh, Dragon 2, that line, the first cargo variant of that. Excited to bring up the NanoRx um, uh, docking area, and uh, um, that's going to be fantastic. Like, we're super excited about that. Um, and uh, I said docking area, airlock. Say that correctly, um, but uh, um, you know, uh, ultimately, we just see this partnership continuing. You know, we're looking forward to. I, I love the fact that the crew, one crew that went up, 
um, just now. They're going to they're spending their next few weeks not only kind of getting oriented, but spending a lot of time catching up a lot of the work that, that's that, that's on station that needs to get done, doing a lot of the science work, um, and then getting ready for 21 to show up, which is going to just have a load of um, of science. So kind of that's the big picture, and that's where we're seeing things heading. Benji, you described so well the ambitions and and the model that you're that you're using to create this this commercial economy. That's really what we're talking about today, an economy. And I know NASA's goal is to be one of many customers, right? In a in a self-sustaining, robust economy where commercial partners are are in low Earth orbit. For SpaceX, can you talk about some of the ways that you are participating in in existing in this market, right? With with Crew One, NASA was the customer. SpaceX provided transportation so that NASA can have astronauts on board the station to conduct science, but we want to be one of many customers, right? So talk about how the Crew Dragon will participate in some of the ambitions NASA has put up, like like private astronauts um, in the low Earth orbit economy. Sure, absolutely. Well, very similar to what happened with Falcon, right? Again, we developed Falcon 9 um, as part of that um, COTS effort and um, and 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 put for to put Dragon to to take Dragon to space station. Um, and now we, again, in, in a very good example, NASA is one of, of many customers on the Falcon 9 rocket. Um, and we're going to start seeing the same thing on Dragon as well. Um, Dragon primarily has been designed space station at home. Um, it's also designed to do free flight. Um, and so, so basically doing orbits in, in low Earth orbit in, in, in LEO. Um, and, you know, can stay up for a number of days or, or depending on the different activities that we can do, we can do... Um, science um, in those in, in low Earth orbit. We can carry payloads in the trunk in the back of Dragon for, for non-pressurized non cargo. We can carry lots and lots of cargo inside and we can carry people as you were as you were alluding to. Um, and so there are many different options there, right? And then now we're also we're already seeing an, another ecosystem of an economy, right? Whether whether we're bringing people up um, ourselves, you know, customers who are coming directly to us um, to be able to fly um, and Dragon and fly astronauts and Dragon, private astronauts, private space, space flight participants. Um, we can fly them in Dragon directly ourselves as direct customers to us. We can also provide those transportation services to a variety of other companies that are, that are you know, essentially brokers who are putting together a whole plan. Um, there are a number of people out there looking at different opportunities for private space stations or private elements of space stations, you know, exactly what Nanorax is doing. Um, you know, and starting to look how do how can we add to the space station as it is, and eventually how can we create, you know, um, commercial space stations? And those all those folks all need transportation services as well, um, and, um, and and transportation for cargo, for science, and of course for people and for astronauts. There are other nations that um, very much want to be involved in space, and they want to become spacefaring nations with their own astronauts, and 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 that's another opportunity there. Um, where they can they can actually now directly buy a seat and and buy an opportunity to fly um, and uh, and fly in Dragon. So lots lots of things and and I, I assure you there's a lot going on and we're going to be excited to see a lot of it. We're already starting to hear some of the announcements and talk about things like that. And then as we move forward, um, you know we've got to keep going. That ultimate goal that's out there, um, which is a shared goal goal with NASA, as we look at this commercialization beyond Leo and we look towards getting. To the moon and getting to Mars, and and so we're building the Starship, which will do um, the same kind of things and be fully reusable. Um, so very exciting future ahead, and lots of partners and lots of customers um, beyond NASA. 
Then uh, Benji was talking a lot about the Crew-1 and some of the ambitions there. We're talking about the Crew-Dragon. This was part of the NASA's commercial crew program. Crew-Dragon is one of those vehicles. Boeing Starliner is the other. Uh, can you talk about some of NASA's goals by having this program and bringing up these capabilities for transportation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was a commercial crew program and it also was a CRS program. You know, the, the, the really transportation organizations with their overarching goal of helping to certify and fly rockets and spacecraft as safely and as quickly as industry can do it. So uh, with these investments, uh, you, you know, not only do we are we celebrating the 20th anniversary of the International Space Station, which is a huge, huge thing. Uh, now on Expedition 64 uh, of the ISS, but we're also celebrating the 10 year anniversary uh, coming up in just about a two weeks here for the the first COTS demo flight number one, uh, which was uh, just under 10 years ago. Uh, and since that time, commercial industry partnered with government, completed 34 cargo resupply missions to the space station, as well as uh, just this year, just in the last six months, we've now, uh, SpaceX has accomplished two crewed missions uh, to the ISS, both with demo two and now with crew one. So, so yeah, it's, it's been a tremendous um, accomplishment uh, for uh, these commercial uh, government uh, partnerships. So um, yeah, so we're very much looking forward to uh, SpaceX becoming a very regular um, uh, occupant uh, of one of the two docking um, uh, adapters up on space station. We're looking forward to uh, Boeing coming up uh, in a matter of months. Uh, they should be coming back up to space stations. We're working very, very hard to, uh, to to ensure that uh, everything's ready and, and they are they're very closely behind so it's it's really a very exciting time so when you look back at just uh, again in the big scheme of things for leo commercialization 10 years ago the station was established uh, sorry 20 years ago the station was established 10 years ago we started these commercial uh partnerships and um and now uh, nearly 40 flights later uh, we are continuing and going on to the next thing also with uh not only with spacex and cygnus on the uh, cargo side, but also with Sierra Nevada uh, coming up here in the next uh, year or two. Quite the landscape. Phil, Phil I wanna pass to you. Um, Mike Reed, in the very beginning of this panel, talked about some of the recent accomplishments and, and um, opening up the station for business and some of the recent efforts for commercializing LEO. Can you talk through some of NASA's recent accomplishments, uh, accomplishments so far uh, to support some of these commercialization efforts? Yeah, sure. So um, when I saw that uh, I was going to be the last speaker, I'm like, oh, that's great. I can sort of adjust my comments accordingly. The downside is that there's almost nothing more to say, right? Everything, everybody's covered something. I'm like, okay, Rich said that, Mike said that. Uh, not sure what I can add uh, to that very good tapestry that I think everybody has laid out for for ISS. Um, obviously, we've had some some very recent successes with uh, having the ISS as this critical test bed to experiment, and I use that word li literally and figuratively, right? Actually doing research experiments, but also um, experimenting on what works and what may not work uh, in terms of economic activity and commercial activity on ISS and in low Earth orbit. So uh, ISS has been a key platform. We're really just seeing some traction now. I think it has to do with the fact that we actually have human commercial space transportation now available uh, through the SpaceX Crew Dragon and very shortly uh, thereafter Starliner. So we're seeing a lot of traction on private astronaut missions that go to the ISS. And not only that, just 
completely uh, private missions that don't even go to the ISS. There was a recent announcement by uh, SpaceX and Space Adventures just to go in space and not to dock with ISS. And NASA will have nothing to do with that uh, project. And that's exactly what we want to see. Um, and we've also uh, seen some successes uh, on the demand side on what we're actually doing in the ISS. Uh, we're seeing some more commercial uh, development projects that are coming up to the ISS. Uh, so, so when I think of the overall sort of commercial LEO development activity that we're doing, um, the ISS has obviously been a critical testbed for that. So I think everybody at NASA, when we think of the ISS, we want to give it the Vulcan salute and say live long and prosper. Uh, but uh, this 20th anniversary is an awesome celebration, but it's also a reminder that the ISS is not going to be around forever. Uh, it could experience an unrecoverable uh, anomaly at any time. And so as amazing as it is, it's also a reminder that that is our, in, that is our single toehold to continuous human presence in low Earth orbit. Um, so it's my job to ensure that we do not have a gap for whenever the ISS retires, whenever that is. Um, and so when I look back historically, um, Benji and Ben also mentioned, you know, we started with cargo. And then we have crew, commercial crew, and I think our long-term vision is then to have commercial destinations. And once we have all three of those in low Earth orbit, primarily driven by private sector um, interests, you have this self-reinforcing um, ecosystem. I know we've used that word a lot, but I really think it applies here, self-sustaining and self-reinforcing. And that's what, uh, that's what the Commercial Leo Development Program is all about. Um, we are looking at eventually having multiple space destinations. Uh, again, the sort of tenuous nature of just having one platform up there, as amazing as it is, uh, reinforces that I think we need multiple destinations, just like we have multiple commercial cargo capabilities and soon commercial crew capabilities. Having redundancy and having multiple capabilities is going to be key. And I think when we look at destinations, when we, we've talked about all the different things that we can do uh, in low Earth orbit, not every destination is going to be good for every kind of application. So we could see sort of tailoring of this destination for this particular market, this destination for another tip, um, different kind of market. But you look overall and you have this sort of uh, rich tapestry capability redundancy that I think we all want to take advantage of, not just NASA. As Mike said, we are going to have continuous requirements in low Earth orbit, we're going to be a good anchor customer for these capabilities. Uh, but as we've said many times, it's not just a cliche. We want to be one of many customers. So we're uh, hopefully going to enable that um, capability to be sold to other customers. And I do agree with Benji completely. The key is cost, right? As amazing as the ISS is, we've always been conscious of cost with the ISS, but it wasn't really developed with that as the primary driver. It had other things that we were trying to accomplish. When you, when you partner with the private sector, they have a laser focus on cost and schedule. And then you bring NASA's experience with human spaceflight, our 50 years of human spaceflight, and you put those together, it's a very, very powerful combination. And we saw it with cargo, we saw it with crew, and I wanna bring those lessons learned with commercial space destinations and make sure that they are online whenever the ISS retires. And I think once that happens, NASA can then uh, set its sights deeper and uh, really allow the uh, economic activity in low Earth orbit to really take off. 
Phil, I think you said it so nicely, and, and I'm sorry for, for making you the last speaker, but but you said it that you know we've covered so much. Man, we, we talked about the International Space Station and some of the great work happening on board with a lot of our uh, commercial uh, partners. We talked about the transportation capabilities, and uh, Phil, you ended so nicely with under, giving us an understanding of what this framework, you know, what what is a robust ecosystem, understanding sort of what that looks like in low Earth orbit. So I just like to end there and 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 thank each and every one of you for taking part in today's discussion. Just what a truly enlightening and fascinating discussion we had uh, today. It's been an honor to to host such an esteemed panel and chat with you all today. So for those listening and, and tuning in, thank you so much. If you want to know more about NASA's low Earth orbit commercialization efforts, visit nasa.gov slash leo economy. As always, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and other social platforms use, and ask us a question using the hashtag AskNASA. Thanks so much for tuning in. When I got to NASA in the mid-1990s and the modules of the International Space Station were still being built, and there were days when you'd be forgiven for wondering when this whole thing was even going to get off the ground, the program goal of promoting commercialization of space and space research didn't seem like such a big deal. Now, it's hard to imagine what this station would be like today if we didn't have the vital contributions from and participation by private companies, including those represented in today's discussion and many, many more. As we move ahead in the Artemis program, look to see how the lessons of the value of commercial partnerships is being applied to the next goals of space exploration. Well, there's more to come on this celebration of the space station's 20th anniversary. The next discussion focuses on the critical importance of the partnership built by the United States and NASA and nations and space agencies from all around the world. That's coming up in a couple of weeks. I'll also remind you that you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. And you can find the full catalog of all of our episodes by going to nasa.gov podcasts and scrolling to our name. You'll also find all the other cool NASA podcasts right there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. The panel discussion in this episode was recorded on November 18th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Gary Jordan, Nora Moran, Belinda Polito, and Jennifer Hernandez in putting together the podcast, and to the NASA JSC External Relations Office for putting together this episode of the Anniversary Panel Discussions. We'll be back next week.